Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Josh Blondes, a postdoctoral fellow at RFF. I'll talk with Josh about his recent research into an energy efficiency program in California. We'll talk about the goals of the program and its outcomes, which are not always good because of something that economists like to call the principal-agent problem. Josh will describe what that means for policymaking on energy efficiency, your next trip to the auto mechanic, and much more. Stay with us. Josh Blondes, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Josh, we're going to talk about a recent paper that you've written. But before we get into the details on that paper, we always like to learn how our guests got interested in energy and environmental topics in the first place. So can you tell us a little bit about what piqued your interest in uh, in this world of research? Sure. So actually, my uh, background is kind of a very RFF-centric story. When I graduated uh, from undergrad as an econ major, I got a job as a research assistant working at RFF, working with uh, Dallas Bertra and Margaret Walls on some energy and environmental related questions. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed it uh, and decided to go to grad school and kind of continue uh, studying energy and environment. And so I went to Berkeley, where they have, they have quite a nice program looking at these types of questions. And uh, upon graduation, came back to RFF because uh, I liked it so much and, and really enjoyed the topic area. Fantastic. So RFF through and through. Yep. Um, that's really great. So let's let's get into to this paper. So the paper we're going to talk about so people can find it, the title is The Welfare Costs of Misaligned Incentives, Energy Inefficiency, and the Principal Agent Problem. So we're going to unpack that in the next uh, 25 or 30 minutes. And uh, the paper focuses on an energy efficiency program in California. Can you tell us a little bit about energy efficiency programs broadly, perhaps at the federal level, and what some of the economics literature has told us about those programs over the last uh, several years? So uh, energy efficiency policy is this incredibly popular uh, policy tool. It even has a little bit of bipartisan support because uh, it's seen as this win-win policy scenario where uh, maybe your, your local utility or your state government or the federal government will uh, provide some subsidies to people to uh, increase the efficiency with which they consume energy. So think of weatherizing your home or or making sure you have really new energy-efficient appliances. Maybe you've seen uh, the Energy Star program out there. This is kind of one of those energy efficiency programs. Uh, We're spending $8.2 billion a year on these types of programs. Uh, And and the reason is because it seems so attractive that uh, we'll help people save on their monthly utility bills with just kind of a little bit of a, a government financial push. Uh, everyone's going to be better off because they will save money uh, on their local utility bill and we're going to reduce energy consumption, which is going to help with uh, CO2 emissions, uh, local air pollution. You know, it sounds great, but uh, what the recent uh, economics literature has really found is that these programs are underperforming, that, uh, you know, they promise to save you $100 a month on your electricity bill and they're saving you maybe 30 or $40, uh, that they're not delivering on their promises. And uh, when they don't do that, they become kind of ineffective. They become, you know, not a good use of our tax dollars. And um, it's been a bit of an open question as to uh, why these programs are underperforming. Uh, there have been some, some papers which have kind of put forward a couple of hypotheses. 
uh, things like you know, the models that are used to uh, predict the savings are, are a little bit optimistic, or maybe people are consuming more energy once it's cheaper to consume energy. Uh, but you know, there isn't really a concrete answer. And it's, it's really kind of a mix, it's potentially a mix of many different factors. And one of the things I'm doing in this paper is, is addressing this question head on and thinking about some of the reasons why this might be happening. Right. And so so we're going to get into that. Uh, one quick clarification question. You mentioned $8.2 billion in expenditures. Is that just the federal government or does that sum up federal, state, local and other initiatives? That's federal, state and local. That's all of it. And a lot of it is going to be run at kind of the local level, like the, the public utility commission in a state will direct the local utility to to run a program. They'll, they'll raise the money kind of on people's electricity bills. If you looked at your electricity bill, there might be a little charge on there that says for, for energy efficiency programs, or maybe not that straightforward, but that's what the money's going to. Right. Let's let's start talking about this paper. And, and as I mentioned, the title of the paper, the phrase principal agent problem is in the title. So can you tell us briefly uh, what the principal agent problem is, uh, kind of in general terms, and, and what sorts of issues it tends to create in an energy and environmental context? Of course. So the principal agent problem is, is definitely a bit of economics jargon, but it really captures uh, this idea that I think most people deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in, in their everyday lives. So a principal agent problem is when you, as the principal, hire someone as an agent to do something for you. Uh, maybe uh, it's you know your, your car mechanic. You need someone to service your car or something's not working. And so uh, you take your car into the mechanic and you're asking this person to diagnose what's wrong with your car. Uh, and then tell you what that is, and then you're going to pay them to fix it. Uh, now, the idea of the principal agent problem is that you, as the car owner, are going to have maybe some different incentives from the mechanic. The mechanic might want to, you know, make some money on this job or, or make more money by replacing something that is, you know, larger uh, or kind of a, a bigger repair than you might need. Right. And the idea of the principal agent problem is you, you never really know exactly what this person's incentives are. Uh, and in some cases, it can lead to some kind of bad outcomes. As a total uh, ignoramus when it comes to car issues, uh, I am sympathizing uh, along with your story and Im imagining the many times in which the bad outcomes have occurred in my particular case. Yeah, there's some there's interesting research papers out there which show that mechanics like to sometimes, you know, go for the more expensive repair when given the choice. And so uh, I take this this kind of everyday principal agent concept and I apply it to these energy efficiency programs. Uh, and, and the way I'd like to think about it is who is actually providing these energy efficiency retrofits? So here, let's think about uh, contractors that come into someone's home to put new insulation in or provide them with some new appliances. These contractors themselves have their own sets of incentives. They're responsible for implementing uh, these programs. Uh, and so it's important to consider you know, what are these contractors interested in and uh, how that might affect the overall performance of one of these uh, energy efficiency programs. Right. So let's look at one of these particular subsidy programs uh, that you focus on in the paper, which is a program in California that uh, has to do with refrigerators and other energy efficiency measures, but specifically refrigerators, I think, is what you focus on. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about this particular program and, uh, you know, kind of how much it costs uh, for the state uh, in terms of either government outlays or, or tax expenditures and uh, what its goals are? 
Sure. So this is, it's called the California Energy Savings Assistance Program. It's, it's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but, but its goal is to help people in California who are low income deal with the high energy bills that uh, we have in California. It's a, it's a pretty expensive state to, to purchase electricity. And, and the idea here is it's a free program. So eligible low-income households uh, can sign up and the utility will come into their home, uh, determine you know, what sort of upgrades they might be eligible for, and then provide them at no cost to the homeowner. So it can be a really great program uh, if you're low-income. It's around a third of the state qualifies. They spend around $285 million a year on it in California. So it's actually a, a pretty substantial program yeah. that's supposed to help low-income people. And so I focus on, like you like you mentioned, this refrigerator replacement uh, component of the program. Uh, one of the reasons I was drawn to this part of it is it's kind of the one of the most important parts of the program based on uh, kind of the people involved with running it. They say that this is where they're getting uh, most of their energy savings from in this policy. And, and the way they've structured it is if your refrigerator, when you sign up for the program, was manufactured in the year 1992 or earlier, you as the homeowner or the renter, the person who lives there, is going to get a brand new, free, energy efficient refrigerator. They're going to take out your old one. They're going to dispose of it. They're going to give you this brand new refrigerator. Sounds good. Yeah. If you're, if you're a low income uh, in California, this is a really great program. Uh, it's, it's designed to help people who are renters as well. Uh, so, you know, a, a pretty common problem is uh, you're renting, you're paying for your, your energy bill, but your landlord may not want to give you the newest appliances because, well, they're not paying the high energy bills responsible for the old appliances. And so this program can kind of come in uh, and just give you that brand new appliance and help you save on uh, your utility bill. And so people in California who are taking advantage of this program, um, they are presumably saving some money on their on their energy bills. Um, but you identify a principal agent problem that manifests itself uh, in, in the form of these refrigerator replacements, uh, particularly looking at elements of the contract structure uh, for the contractors who come in and do the refrigerator replacements. So uh, can you talk a little bit more about how the principal agent problem manifests itself in this context and and how the contract uh, side of things kind of plays into this story? Of course. So um, contractors in this program are being paid for the, the amount of work they do. So they get paid for replacing the refrigerator, enrolling people in the program, and all of it. And this is a pretty typical contract structure. If you've ever had someone work on your house, you pay them for the job they do. But it also gives these contractors this incentive to maybe break the program rules a little bit uh, and actually misreport data. And so if they walk into someone's home, uh, they can look at the refrigerator. There's usually a little plaque on the inside of your refrigerator that, that tells you the serial number, which you can very easily determine the age it's manufactured. A contractor can, can come into someone's home. They can see that a refrigerator was manufactured in 1995, which would make it ineligible under this program. But they can just write down 1992 in the program documents, and that refrigerator is going to be replaced under the program. And these contractors have the incentive to do this uh, because they're going to be paid to actually do that replacement. Uh, and so there's a very large incentive for them to do this misreporting. And this is paired with the fact that the utility isn't verifying the, the data that they're submitting. And so it actually makes it a kind of an easy situation uh, for uh, these contractors to just tweak the data a little bit to increase their own compensation. 
Right. And so, yeah, it, it would be hard for the utility to track down every refrigerator at the dump and track it to, to each document, right, with this program. Yeah, there's monitoring systems that uh, you can imagine implementing. You could have the, the contractor take a picture of the little plaque on the inside of their cell phone and submit that as a part of uh, the packet. For me as the researcher, it's actually quite nice that they don't have that that part of the program <laughs> there because I can see the incentives of these contractors and how it affects uh, their reporting behavior. Right. So as policy researchers, we want to try to fix policies, but not too much. We have to keep, you know, a little bit of errors out there so we can keep finding things to work on. Um, so uh, t tell us a little bit about what you found when you look at the principal agent problem in this program. How does it affect energy use and other outcomes like overall welfare from the perspective of the homeowner on energy use uh, or from the perspective of society when it comes to overall welfare? And what are the costs of this type of misreporting behavior by contractors? So first, what I end up finding is that around half of the refrigerators that were replaced in this program were done as the result of this misreporting. Uh, so it's actually a pretty large deal and has some pretty uh, significant effects on the overall program. Uh, and so to, to quantify actually how this matters, I use household level electricity consumption data. So I can observe before and after these households uh, consumption. And, and so using some econometric techniques, I can estimate, you know, what is the effects of a refrigerator replacement? And I can do this differently for those that qualified for the program, the ones that they were intending to be done and the ones that didn't qualify. Uh, and so what I find is that the qualified replacements, those, you know, manufactured before that cutoff year, they're saving households 16% of their monthly electricity consumption, which is quite a lot. Uh, old refrigerators used a lot of electricity. And so uh, having a brand new refrigerator is actually going to do a pretty good job at saving electricity. Mm -hmm. In contrast, the unqualified replacements save half as much. They save only 8% of a household's monthly electricity consumption. And so there's this very large difference between the, the ones that follow the program rules and the ones that didn't. The forces that are driving that is they designed this program very intentionally to remove the oldest, uh, least efficient refrigerators. And starting in 1983, refrigerators became quite a bit more efficient because they had to satisfy uh, some, some federal guidelines, some minimum efficiency standards. And so what these contractors are doing by breaking program rules is they're replacing these much newer and more efficient refrigerators and hence getting a lot less energy savings uh, out of the program for the exact same cost. Right. So then uh, I kind of take these electricity savings numbers and think about uh, what we as economists like to call the welfare effects, uh, which is kind of... Uh, you know, a jargony way to say the the social uh, scorecard. You know, if I'm the kind of the, the social planner who wants to make everyone uh, better off, uh, I'm I'm weighing all these different factors to to go into this welfare effect, and and I make this calculation uh, using kind of all these parameters I've I've thought about uh, in this paper, uh, and so. What I find is that uh, qualified replacements, uh, those that follow the program rules, they're increasing welfare by $60 per replacement. And so this is going to include a whole lot of things. This includes externality reduction. So we have lower amounts of uh, CO2 emissions, local air pollution. Those are all great benefits associated with making these replacements. Uh, we're making the households better off. They're paying less money uh, for their utility bills. That's another really good benefit to have. There's costs associated with, you know, you have to purchase these refrigerators, you have to pay people to install them. So that all goes into the calculation. Now, when I do that same calculation for these unqualified refrigerator replacements, I find that they actually reduce welfare on the order of $106 per installation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so 
there's a really big difference between those that, that followed the program rules uh, and those that didn't. Uh, and, and the way I like to think about kind of how to think about all these results together is from the policy perspective. So you can take a program which on paper appears to be welfare improving. It's making everybody better off when you take into account the costs and the benefits. But when you introduce the incentives of these agents to the situation, these contractors, you can actually turn the program into a welfare reducing program. So this might be um, one of those, the explanations for why these energy efficiency programs are underperforming, that the people tasked with doing these installations with these retrofits are actually making it less effective. Right. And so in the paper, and you mentioned this early on when we were talking a few minutes ago, that there are these numerous papers in the economics literature finding that these energy efficiency programs are less effective than we we might hope that they are. So it sounds like your paper is explaining, uh, at least potentially explaining, part of the reason uh, for that ineffectiveness. Um, and so do you see this as a potential avenue to to maybe improve these efficiency programs going forward? Are there other solutions out there that you're thinking about? Exactly. So uh, most energy efficiency programs use this third-party contractor structure. Uh, and so it's likely that, that other energy efficiency programs are susceptible uh, to these exact same kind of uh, principal agent problems that could be uh, reducing the effectiveness of this program. Now, it's going to be context-specific, but I think what one of the findings in my paper suggests is that we really need to be cognizant of these incentives. It hasn't really been kind of talked about uh, and addressed directly. And so I think policymakers, as they continue to implement these energy efficiency programs, should put monitoring into place or think about how the contract structures uh, might be incentivizing agents to maximize their own payouts, which could potentially uh, hurt the overall program outcomes. Right. And that could apply at, you know, all sorts of levels, right? Federal level, uh, state level, as, as well as, you know, private utilities that are undertaking these efforts on their own. Are there implications of this work for other non-energy industries? So there are many kind of papers that have looked at these types of principal agent problems. Bonuses are a big area. So people try to reach their year-end bonus uh, by hitting specific sales targets. And there's been some papers out there which have shown how people are strategically uh, reporting their bonuses in certain ways, using accounting tricks to, to hit their bonus. It's kind of unclear as to what are the actual consequences of these types of behaviors. And so what my paper is doing is, is picking one of these principal agent cases and showing that there are some really significant welfare costs associated with it. Uh, now, the principal agent problem isn't this kind of new idea. It, it's it's pretty well understood uh, in the economics profession, but understanding what the consequences are is really important. And I think there's a lot of research to be done using this framework to examine various federal programs, state programs, or just kind of contracts in general between uh, employers and employees. Right. Yeah, fascinating. At RFF, we don't have bonuses, so I'm not you know, asking my questions in any different way than I otherwise would. Or at least I don't get any bonuses. If other people do, I'd, I'd like to know about it. So this is really fascinating work, and uh, but I know you have other interests when it comes to the world of energy and environments, not just refrigerators and energy efficiency and principal age problems. So what are you interested in and, and working on now? So I'm working on this new project uh, with a number of uh, co-authors at uh, Resources for the Future, uh, where we're investigating how these new smart home energy-saving technologies can actually benefit consumers. Now, there's been some studies out there looking at how 
you know, smart thermostats can, can make people better off? Uh, and I think these are really important questions, but how most of the literature has addressed these questions is uh, by looking at how these technologies can affect energy consumption. Do people reduce their energy consumption when, when they get a new thermostat? And, you know, that's one way to look at it. But, you know, it can miss one of the important parts of the equation, which is how comfortable are people in their own homes? Uh, so one way that you could conceivably save energy is just turn off your air conditioner in the summer. Uh, you'll sweat a lot, but your, your utility bill will go down uh, quite a bit. But it's kind of unclear whether that has made you actually better off as a consumer. Right. Uh, and so we try to get at this question by using data from one of these uh, new smart thermostats. And it kind of creates this new stream of data that allows us to observe things we've never been able to see before. So we have data on you know, when people are home with uh, motion sensor data. We know what their preferred temperature is inside, and we know what the actual temperature is at these five-minute intervals. And so we can use this data to evaluate one of these, these uh, smart scheduling features that comes on these thermostats to see if it actually makes people better off. And what we find is it actually does help. Uh, to some extent, our preliminary results show that these technologies can make people save energy or allow people to save energy uh, while maintaining the same level of comfort. So they're just as comfortable, but they're using less energy. So this is kind of this is great. This is exactly what we're after as economists uh, and as policymakers. And so this suggests that these types of data, these new technologies, both can help people out and also allow us to learn something about how consumers are interacting with their appliances, uh, how they're consuming energy at this disaggregated level. Uh, before, you know, we had meter level data. We might even know at 15 minute intervals how people are consuming energy, but we don't know how much of that's going to the refrigerator or to the thermostat uh, or to the lights. And so uh, this data allows us to get in there and uh, really understand uh, what's going on. I'm really kind of excited to kind of work uh, on this area. Yeah, that's great. And you know, all these new data streams that are available from the proliferation of technology around the home. I, I know there are other researchers interested in this stuff, and um, I'll be really interested to read the results of your work on, on this thermostat issue when, when it's ready. So uh, so we're going to close it up now. But before we go, I want to ask you uh, the same thing that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack, um, or maybe at the top of your, you know, tabs on your internet browser. So, you know, what's something that you've read or watched or heard recently related to the energy environment that, that you find really interesting and that you think our listeners uh, would be interested in as well? So I read a, a really great blog post uh, this week that the uh, the Energy Institute at uh, UC Berkeley puts out, which I would recommend uh, to all the listeners to, to check out, uh, written by uh, Severin Bornstein. And it's looking at the idea of, of ride sharing and how that affects traffic. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone has, has been using Uber or Lyft. It makes our lives uh, quite a bit better. Uh, but people also really don't like sitting in traffic. And so there have been some studies which have shown that maybe these types of ride-sharing platforms are contributing uh, to traffic. Uh, and this is upsetting a lot of people, especially the people who own cars and, and sit in traffic all the time. And some cities have started to take some actions to deal with this problem. Uh, New York is kind of a prominent example. They're trying to cap the number of Uber drivers uh, that are out there, uh, which you know, as an economist, this isn't really the right way to deal with um, this kind of situation. Because if you think about it, the problem itself is not the ride sharing. 
The problem is the traffic itself. Uh, and economists have long suggested that uh, the best way to deal with this is by just directly taxing the externality itself, which is congestion. Uh, there's a lot of ways to do this. You can charge people who drive into kind of trafficy urban areas during rush hour or charge people to uh, drive on freeways that are usually you know, very congested. Uh, and, and this way, it'll kind of give people the right price uh, for their driving. And, you know, these, these bans, these, these caps on the amount of uh, ride-sharing rider or drivers uh, maybe isn't the right way to go about it because, you know, that might help out the people who previously, you know, owned cars and were driving, but it really kind of shuts down the opportunities for, for new transit opportunities. These types of ride-sharing apps are, as we move into the future, are going to be changing dramatically. Uh, Self-driving cars is you know, what everyone loves to talk about. They're really going to require kind of the right policy prescriptions to deal with the congestion they might charge. And I think this blog post does a really nice job of kind of talking through either side of it and then really suggesting that uh, the economic solution uh, would be the right way to go about it, which is taxing uh, congestion. And there's all these added benefits. You can use all this revenue you raise to subsidize public transit, to, to help other people have alternatives to maybe not travel on roads uh, during the most congested times. Right. So sometimes congestion pricing, I think, is a broad term that gets applied to these things. And um, what's the uh, what's the name of the blog post or the uh, the name of the Berkeley blog itself so people can look it up? So you can find it. It's, it's called the Energy Institute blog. And the blog post is called uh, Lift Doesn't Cause Congestion. All Vehicles Do. Right. All right. Well, we'll have to check that out. Josh, thank you so much for the recommendation. And thanks so much for taking the time to share the results of this uh, really fascinating research on the principal agent problem uh, in the context of energy efficiency programs. Uh, really appreciate you being here. Thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think. So please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.